0: Hi, it's Steph. This is a this is a mere speculation cast. I'll sort of say this uh, right up front. I sort of try to be clear when I'm merely speculating as opposed to establishing something more permanent. But this is a uh, this is a definite speculation cast. This is uh, just following certain thoughts and seeing where they lead. Uh, this is certainly not conclusive, but I do think that it's very very interesting. And the question that I've been mulling over for the past few days that I'd like to talk about is, uh, to what degree are children morally responsible? And uh, I've said in the past, and, uh, and it's not an official withdrawing of the position, but it's a re-examination of the question. Uh, I've said in the past, uh, this is before I have kid- had kids, that uh, children are not uh, morally responsible. And uh, I mean, I think sort of legally and so on, that this, this could well be the case still, but I'm just sort of mulling and chewing over the uh, possible objections to, to my position. So, what are uh, some potential objections? Well, like all thoughts, it starts with an innocuous thing, uh, and uh, I'll tell you what it was, and, uh, and then I'll tell you why I ended up thinking what I'm thinking now. So, a couple of days ago, I was playing with Izzy in our <laughs> entirely, almost completely bare living room, dining room, and I haven't done this with her in a while, and there's, a, I think there's a little video of me doing this somewhere on the boards or on the internet, uh, where I'm sort of, I'm carrying her, and I'm flipping a ball up by curling my toe underneath and flipping up my leg. And I'm sort of flipping the ball uh, up and then it bounces off the wall and she giggles and so on. Now, she's getting fairly good at kicking balls now. Uh, she's uh, 16 and a half months. And I was doing... I haven't done this in a long time, but I curled my toe under and I flipped the ball up and she laughed. And then, rather than just asking me to do it again, uh, she wanted to do it herself. And um, so I rolled the ball towards her and Of course, she couldn't, right? She can't, I mean, there's so many reasons why she can't do it. She can't. doesn't have the dexterity to place her toe right under the ball. She doesn't certainly have, I don't think she has that explosive strength to kick the ball up. And uh, she doesn't have the balance. Even if she did, she'd just fall over. So there's lots and lots of reasons as to why she couldn't do it. And I've never felt this before. And it took a long time to figure out why I felt it at this moment but i felt a kind of um a real sadness and a real it's contempt is too strong a word but a real sense of superiority and you know recognizing that she's probably at least 2 years away from being able to do this and her attempts were so quote clumsy i mean she's not a clumsy kid she's really dexterous and she's been mastering things fantastically so I, I, I fully and this is not at all empirical to the situation not at all empirical to the situation and certainly not at all empirical to my mad enthusiasm for the things that she's able to master but seeing how far away she was from this and seeing it wasn't really contempt it looked so pathetic that she This is I felt a sense of it was pathetic that she was so far from being able to do it now I fully get that that's insane I mean <laughs> that is absolutely mental that uh, that feeling that it's pathetic that she can't do this very advanced thing when she's already mastered so many uh, things for her age. Then uh, I just uh, I'm I'm thrilled and excited and she's going up and downstairs and she's running and she's just doing fantastically. She she can throw two balls uh, in her hand and so on. Right, so I'm I'm perfectly thrilled with how she's doing and I'm incredibly impressed with what she's doing. And so this this made no sense. This feeling it made no sense at all. empirically like in the context of the situation so I was mulling it over I was mulling it over I was mulling it over and I thought well since it's such a deep and old feeling it has to be I apply the principles (laughs) I try to live by the principles that I suggest so I started looking at my past and so on right? and I thought well was there anyone who made fun of my inabilities or my lack of abilities when I was inevitable and natural lack of abilities when I was a baby and I was a toddler well I can tell you it wasn't my mom because my mom is not cruel that way at all I mean she's not sadistic and um, it wasn't my dad because he wasn't around. Uh, I do remember my brother making fun of my, my inabilities, right? Because he's two and a half years older. So, I mean, that's a huge gap, of course, when when you're young, you know, two to four and a half, or three to one, um, one to three and a half. I mean, so it's a huge gap. And it led me down a real matrix style rabbit hole of thought. And the thought was. I mean, obviously, the degree to which, let's say, uh, it doesn't matter, my brother in particular, but let's just say an elder sibling. the, The degree to which an elder sibling feels contempt and superiority for his abilities relative to a younger sibling's abilities, I think is is really important. And uh, I, I mulled that over a lot. And I, I've talked about some of this in the sibling podcast, but this is a little bit more subtle than just outright abuse, of course, right? And But uh, to feel superior as a result of birth order is a pretty pathetic thing, uh, of course, right? I mean, just happen to be born sooner and you can run before you, you... So you feel perhaps if you're an older sibling and you don't have good role models and blah, 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 then you're going to grab for whatever self-esteem you can, if you're sort of ground down or whatever, and one way that you can grab a hold of some self-esteem is to feel superior to your younger siblings, right? Like, uh, to feel like you're stronger and better and faster, which, of course, you are. But, of course, it's nothing earned. Uh, it is uh, It is just an accident of birth. But And so it's a pretty pathetic thing to hang your hat on. But I think it's fairly common. I think it's fairly common. And the problem that results in that, for me, is when it's i mean it's a, it's a gruesome example of the fallacy of sunk costs so if you're an elder sibling and you have put a lot of your energy and self-esteem so to speak into being superior to your younger sibling then you're heavily invested into your younger sibling being inferior I mean, your sense of self, of efficacy, of mastery, of competence, is not entirely, but it's to a large degree, dependent upon remaining superior to your younger sibling. And I think this is one of the things that happens with siblings that's so common and so tragic, which is that the elder sibling simply won't give up the position of authority and of dominance. And always has to perceive himself or herself as superior to the younger sibling. That certainly was the case with uh, my relationship with my brother, uh, I simply... Uh, I mean, it's like outgrowing a straitjacket, getting out of these incredibly limiting relationships. If you have a relationship in your life, as I did with a number of people who were heavily committed to my incompetence, who were heavily committed to my inferiority, whose sense of self was dependent upon me remaining smaller or weaker or dumber or whatever, I... I mean, and it was completely heartbreaking, this this process. But uh, I recognized... with incredibly more sorrow than anger. I recognized that I just couldn't do anything of substance in my life with these people around because they were just so committed to me being unwise or less competent or uh, too impulsive or unthinking or careless or whatever it was, however it was that they had defined themselves as superior to me which was not empirical and it's entirely historical going back to a time long gone where, you know, differences in abilities were important from a functional standpoint but unimportant from a superiority standpoint and relative to a superiority standpoint. But there were those in my life who had defined themselves and defined themselves not just in, the, in an inconsequential or minor manner but defined their, their identities in, in a large part as, as superior uh, to me. And it was simply not possible for me to achieve anything uh, great or, or even good or, or powerful or anything like that with those people in my life, because I could not escape my susceptibility to their skepticism. And I think that, that was a huge insight for me, is to recognize that I simply could not escape my susceptibility to their skepticism. I mean, we all have this idea that, you know, we can... If we have an older brother or older sister or whoever, right? It could be a friend who's invested in superior in their superiority to us. Superiority to us. Sorry, let me enunciate. <laughs> let me not unenunciate in my excitement. If we have a friend who or a sibling or family member who's invested in our inferiority, then it's heartbreaking to realize that uh, you simply can't become who you are with that person around. Because at a very, uh, probably at an unconscious level, largely, um, that your power is is an enormous threat to their self-esteem and they will move. Like the three-dimensional chess of emotional slave repression will continually be playing in your head. And it was my, I mean, I got that I simply could not do great things. I I couldn't sort of be the Zen guy, rise above it and blah, 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 because it was sort of incessant and and very powerful. And uh, I avoided the topics of what I was thinking about with those who were closest to me, in its, or closest to me quotes, because it was uh, it was too painful. It was too painful to bring up what I was thinking and have them roll their eyes and express scorn and, and skepticism and blah 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 blah. And and it's not like scorn and no, scorn is a little rude, but skepticism is perfectly fine. Of course, I, I'm skeptical of what I say and I have uh, things that I have revised. Oh, reminds me. I've been meaning to post something about the psychological benefits of psychedelic drugs. Anyway, guess that contradicts my earlier position, which I'd like to explore more. But uh, I. I could never achieve that. And giving up that illusion that I could achieve indifference to 35-year relationships with a particular pattern of hierarchy, I, I mean, I simply couldn't. The grooves are worn too deeply. It's like it's like saying, well, I, I've spoken English and only English for 35 years. I'm going to go to another country, and then when somebody speaks English, I'm going to will myself not to he- understand what they're saying. Well, that's not possible. You spoke English for 35 years, barring a stroke or a brain injury. When somebody speaks to you in English, you're going to understand it, whether you like it or not. You can't will yourself to not understand a language you've spoken for 35 years. And it's the same thing for me with familial and even long-term friendships. I simply could not unlearn the language of hierarchy just because I wanted to. It was too deeply, it was too deeply ingrained within me. So, the way that I worked it out in my mind, and it's such a foreign feeling to me. I'm, I'm so immensely encouraged at people's progress. In, and as I am encouraged, of course, I my own progress down the path of, of wisdom and virtue, halting and inconsistent though it may feel and be at times. So it was a very foreign feeling to me, to my experience. And, oh man, one of the greatest things that I got out of therapy was to try and avoid the narcissism of ascribing all feelings to my organic self, all feelings to myself. No, uh, some feelings are natural to me uh, and uh, some feelings are the responsibility uh, of others? They are uh, infected within me. I mean, or benevolently placed within me. But uh, I think I think that's an important distinction, right? So to say, take a concrete example: if I get an append- if I get appendicitis, that is uh, a feeling of pain that is endemic. Uh, it's innate to my body. It's not somebody else who's doing it to me. Uh, it is my own uh, agony. Whereas if somebody drops a concrete block on my toe, uh, that is the fault of somebody else's, right? The pain uh, that I'm feeling is the fault of somebody else. And it's the same thing with feelings. There are some feelings that are mine, uh, that arise from my uh, own perceptions and personality and experiences, and there are other feelings that are the responsibility of others, uh, both positive and negative, who've uh, helped or harmed me uh, throughout my life. And one of the things that I really learned early on in therapy was to understand that not everything that I experience is an aspect of myself alone. I think that's really, really important to understand. Not everything that you experience is some aspect of yourself alone, right? So, uh, in the realm of self-attack, it's not like you just randomly have a mean part of yourself that wails on you for uh, having uh, for doing things imperfectly, which is a setup, of course. You never do anything perfectly. Uh, you don't just randomly have an inner critic, you have internalized an inner critic. And the responsibility for that lies with others. The responsibility for dealing with it lies with you. But one of the first things that uh, I do when examining a feeling is say, well, what is the source? And this feeling that I had with, had with Isabella was such a, an odd, kind of creepy feeling that I'd never consciously experienced before, that was so inappropriate to my values about the situation, my enthusiasm that she could kick, not that she was she had shortcomings in her kicking. And again, not shortcomings relative to where she was, but relative to what I was doing. Like what the hell does that mean, right? In terms of comparison. It's like calling her dumb because she can't pronounce the word anti disestablishmentarianism. So given that it was such a foreign feeling, it had to come from somewhere else. And the most likely person was that it came from was my brother. And also because whenever you're experiencing emotions around a toddler, it's almost always to do with your family, because the most likely thing is that you experienced those feelings or had those feelings around when you yourself were a toddler. So it's very, very early. I mean, Isabella, I believe, is still classified as a baby up until the age of two. Uh, at which point she becomes a junior citizen of Libertopia, and so if it is something that came from my brother, then there's choice in that. I mean, I know I sort of just leaped a whole bunch of things here, and I sort of try and explain what I mean. The feeling that I had was, I'm feel I'm pretty sure, it was my brother's experience of uh, feeling superior to me because I was younger so feeling that he could do things that I, I couldn't do and as I've said before my very first memory is when I was at that I had to be 10 or 11 months old because I knew I walked pretty early and I couldn't stand uh, or even roll properly I could sit and topple over so to be 10 or 11 months my earliest memory is of my brother teasing me saying Stefan is a baby Stefan is a baby and feeling that hot angry frustration and saying no like I couldn't get away he was kind of dancing around me And I think he was poking at me, but I can't remember exactly. But he had that mobility, and I was stuck like a lump on a log because I was younger. And so there was that frustration of his uh, uh, mobility and my defenselessness, right? As always is the case, who knows where my mother was? Anyway, so if I'm getting echoes of my brother's feelings of superiority for when I lacked his physical and mental abilities due to my younger age, then it was a mixture. It was a mixture of sadness, it was a mixture of superiority, of almost contempt, of pity, but a kind of superiority pity, not a pity like uh, when you pity someone who's going through a really hard time, but a sort of pity like when you are looking at uh, some, I don't know, retarded... No, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know exactly how to describe the pity. I'm not doing a very good job of it, but it's pity like a scornful superiority like when you're watching someone who thinks they're as good as you who's completely incompetent and you, you're sort of afraid to say to them that they're that bad because you feel that they're so fragile. It's that kind of pity. Uh, it's a very superior and contemptuous kind of uh, pity. You have ideas above your station. As uh, one of the British ambassadors said to the Turks before World War I, thus accelerating the outbreak of World War One. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on another series. So because the feeling was very complex and ambivalent and took a long time to unravel the feeling like the more ambivalent the feeling the more choice there is in it when like i remember when i i was a minor shoplifter when i was a kid because i hung out with some fairly nasty people and i was going through my uh, potential sociopath phase i would say and there was after I'd stolen a few things I began to feel am oh, pretty bad about it and uh, at one point I needed some sunglasses because I was um, I, I was doing some sport outside I think I was I was running or uh, it was either running or soccer And uh, I I really felt like I needed sunglasses because it was really bright and uh, unpleasant on my eyes. And, of course, I didn't have any money to buy sunglasses. So I remember being at Eaton's at the Don Mills Mall, standing in front of a sunglasses rack, looking around for... I can't can't remember if there were cameras back then. Probably not. Maybe there were. Anyway, looking around for cameras and feeling like I really wanted to steal these sunglasses, feeling like society was constructed so that I wouldn't get sunglasses and nobody cared, so it was a state of nature. And... Also feeling that I did not want to uh, steal these things, partly out of fear. Fear of the immediate, of course, but uh, I would say even more importantly, uh, it was fear of where that path was going to lead, a fear of a future that I'd be making for myself if I became more than a temporary recreational thief. Uh, That was a very complex and a desire for sunglasses, anger and frustration with society as a whole, anger and frustration with my family situation uh, as it was, as it stood. Uh, loneliness, uh, entitlement, and uh, desire for the sunglasses, and fear of the consequence. A very complex feeling, and I ended up not stealing, and I never stole again, because I just, I did not want to experience that feeling of stealing, of contemplating stealing. It was a very uncomfortable, uh, very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant feeling, and it's similar to what I felt with Isabella when she was trying to kick this little woolen ball, or she was kicking it, but not, obviously, with the dexterity and balance that I was. And, I mean, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself it seems silly even to say it because she never would be able to if she would it would probably be indication of a neurological problem but it was a very complex and challenging feeling that I was experiencing and it reminded me somewhat of the desire and the revulsion of stealing or contemplating stealing when I was younger when I was about 11 12 maybe I think it was 11 so where that complexity of feeling was there then there's choice, right? Where there's no complexity of feeling, in a sense, there's really no choice, right? So if you pick up something that's really hot and then drop it immediately, there's no complexity of feeling. It's not like, well, I want to, but I don't want to, and all this sort of stuff. No, there's just, you, yuck, right? If you uh, step in some dog shit, you don't have a lot of, hmm, maybe that looks good on my shoe, and maybe I'm hungry. No, it's just revulsion probably, right? So there's not a lot of complexity of feelings in those situations. And this is why I'm continually touting the, quote, virtue of ambivalence, because where there's ambivalence, there is choice. And uh, where there is choice, there is the capacity for virtue. So where I had that complexity of feeling when I was younger, I chose not to steal and never stole again. When I experienced what I'm sure my brother experienced when he felt himself to be superior to me and knew that it was an unjust, cowardly, and ridiculous thing to do to feel superior to a 10-month-old baby because you can walk and the baby can't, and you can run and the baby can't, and you can dance and the baby can't. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty pathetic thing <laughs> to, be, to feel superior to. Um, uh, that's like feeling um, superior to people starving in Africa because you have... Uh, food. Well, I guess I just planned and prepared better, didn't I? Well, that's pathetic. I mean, it's really, really a wretched, wretched thing to base your self-esteem on. So, there is, in a sense, the ambivalence I think that I was experiencing was pride, as in, I can do things that my little brother can't, so there's pride, but along with that pride, there is shame, and the shame is I'm comparing myself to a toddler. So, there is superiority, and there is contempt but there is mixed in with the contempt for the younger person who you feel superior to is an even deeper level of contempt for yourself, for comparing yourself so unjustly to somebody who is inferior through no achievement of yours, no fault of theirs. And if I'm guessing rightly, Isabella is 16 months, which means that my brother would be about four. When I was 16 months, my brother would be about four. And this is, uh, and of course, I mean, it's such an enormous difference, right? Four, you can speak in sentences, count pretty high, you can do some math, you can read. And a toddler, you know, Isabella is stringing two words together, which I think is fantastic. Uh, And she can sing along with maybe a third of a song sometimes, but uh, it's a huge difference, of course, between 16 months and, and four years old. And if this was occurring, then my brother, when he was four, was feeling pride and shame with his um, feelings of superiority towards me. And there was a great deal of ambivalence in those feelings that he had. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Well, I'm talking about all this because where there's ambivalence, there is choice, there is morality. And so, I'm really reevaluating at a very fundamental level, my conception of where morality first comes to be. Where does morality first come to be? There are lots of studies which I uh, was not ava- aware of, and I'm not even sure were available five years ago when I f- started talking about this kind of stuff. So uh, I've read The Philosophical Baby, interviewed Dr. Gopnik, and uh, The Moral Life of Babies was a recent article in the New York Times. This stuff was certainly not available when I was starting to do this podcast. And uh, I was really focusing more on... I'm trying to weasel it out. I mean, I definitely said it all, but it's really focusing more on the moral responsibility, uh, legal responsibility, rather than uh, do kids know right from wrong. Well, yeah, I think kids do know right from wrong. <laughs> wherever you have ambivalence, wherever you have the capacity to recognize consequences, and wherever you have the capacity to control behavior, in other words, you wait till the teacher's back is turned before you poke the other kid under the table, then uh, lo and behold, you have some level of moral responsibility so I think I was experiencing what it's like to have moral responsibility as a four-year-old relative to myself as a 16-month-old. And it was a very, I mean, the mind is just an amazing, amazing thing. And this was a very powerful moment for me that took a lot of, of puzzling out to figure out what was, uh, what was going on with it. Now, one thing that my brother did say when uh, I finally sat him down to talk about a childhoods very proactively when I was about 20, was he? he you know, when he was uh, in tears about it, he said something I think it was pretty close to, as long as I could remember, I tried to stop. I told myself I would stop you know, teasing and bullying and humiliating, verbal uh, abusing. Uh, he said he, he tried to stop as long as I can remember. And as long as I can remember, for me, goes back to the single, almost to the single digit months. As long as I can remember, I have tried to stop. I tried to stop which means that he, and he was telling me, I experienced choice from a very young age because I experienced ambivalence. And I also opposed UPB. I mean, children are UPB monsters. All children do is UPB themselves into, uh, uh, into maturity. Uh, with Isabella, it's very clear. I doesn't mean one eye. It means both eyes. I eye doesn't mean just her eyes. It means her eyes and the eyes of others. And it also means the eyes of things, uh, of people in pictures. And it also means the eyes of her bear, uh, teddy bears. It also means the eyes of her dog toy and so on, right? Uh, eyes of fishes, right? So that's UP be being. An eye is, you know, the clear, semi-clear orb used for seeing uh, or any representation thereof, right? So she can, I can draw a little smiley face and she can put two things, she says eyes, right? So she knows it's the two dots in the middle of the uh, face that, right? So she's just, continually extrapolating to concepts, from instance to concept, from entity to abstraction all the time. And the ambivalence that we experience fundamentally comes when we inflict a universal rule that we would hate being subjected to. Let me just say that again, because it's really the, the fundamental definition of emotional ambivalence is when we inflict a universal rule that we would hate to be subjected to. And I think that's really, really important. So, my brother was very big on humiliating me uh, in front of people, but if I ever embarrassed him, he would be really angry at me. It wouldn't be like, hey, you got me, fair is fair. I dish it out, I can take it, right? Uh, He would always be really angry, should I ever do anything to embarrass him, but he would continually work to embarrass me uh, in front of people. You know, a minor example I mentioned before, just so you get a sense of what it was, right? I mean, I was uh, talking to a girl I was interested in in a record store. I was about maybe 14. And my brother, who was 16 and a half, came up and said, oh, Steph, attracted, are we? Wipe off the drool. And he ran his hand along my chin, which was, of course, a very humiliating and embarrassing thing to do. It's tough enough to go up to a girl that you like and strike up a convo without your brother coming and embarrassing you into the ground, right? But of course, if I ever did that to him or ever embarrassed him, then he would be really angry. So the ambivalence comes from having um, a universal rule, which which you would hate to be subjected to. I mean, this is this is what short-circuits the brain and creates the ecosystem uh, in, a, in a negative way. It creates and exacerbates the ecosystem in a negative way, though there is a ecosystem in a positive way, uh, as I've talked about with uh, Izzy, who, when she's approaching something, as, as I mentioned, I think I lost this podcast somewhere, but uh, I saw Izzy reaching for a plug, which she's not supposed to reach, a wall socket and she reached for it, and she said, no, 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 and then her hand, called. she was telling her hand, no, 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 she'd internalized it, and it was a very friendly, like, no, 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 right, she didn't do it, and she does that, I've got it on video somewhere, make it post it if people are interested, that she's doing something, and she says, no, 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 and restrains herself, in other words, she's internalizing an external voice, the Mika system is, occurs, as I've always suspected, to healthy uh, and uh, happy individuals, but it turns toxic when ambivalence creates permanent splits within the integration of the personality, and within... I would strongly suspect, the very brain itself. So, if my brother was experiencing ambivalence at the age of four, and, as he said, as long as he could remember, which is way back even before, if my brother was experiencing ambivalence in his cruel and unjust uh, treatment of me, then he had choice. And if he had choice, then there is moral choice in in the low single digits for children. There is moral choice. Now, this, of course, raises a whole host of complicated issues, which I'm aware of. And please remember, this is just an exploration. This is no final proof of anything, of course, right? But let's, um, uh, let's say that he did uh, he did have some choice. The next thing that I think of, and I'm sure is what you think of as well. Oh, it's so nice that the gym is empty today. Anyway, the next thing that I think of, and I'm sure you think of it as well, was that, well, does he, did he really have choice? Uh, Did he really have choice because all he had experienced was cruelty and violence and humiliation himself? Well, that's true, but it's not true that if you, like it's not true like a a law of physics, that if you experience abuse, violence, and humiliation, that you will automatically become an abuser yourself, even at the age of four, because I certainly didn't. I mean, it wasn't like I was ever, never did anything wrong, never did anything to hurt people, but I was not cruel and sadistic in that way uh, at all. In fact, I had a great deal of concern for those uh, who were lonely or isolated or separated or weakened or whatever. And so it's not automatic to say, well, if you experience these things, you will then dish it out. Because I didn't. So there's more to it than just the experience of humiliation and... Uh, every child in the world, it's true, I didn't have a younger sibling to pick on, but there are always younger children around that you can push over or you can take their toys from and blame others, so you can always turn into that hateful little nasty thing. And so, uh, yeah, I could always have found, uh, and there were around kids who were younger than me always, right? So, uh, it's not axiomatic to say if you've experienced it, you will dish it out. And I think most of the people on FDR would be would be proof of that. Um, so that's not uh, that's not enough. Now, uh, that's not to say that it's not. It may be. It's a, it's a necessary but not sufficient criterion uh, criterion for abuse. Right? To be abused is necessary, but it's not sufficient to explain abuse. In other words, people who aren't abused, I can't imagine they become abusers. But people who are abused may become abusers. Now let's take another example, though, which is that uh, I have never seen Isabella uh, do anything mean or cruel or destructive or hurtful or harmful to uh, to anyone. To her stuffed toys, to other kids, to other adults, to herself, or anything like that. And you could say, well, she doesn't really have the choice to do that, because it's not in her vocabulary. In the same way that if you don't teach your kid Mandarin, they don't have the choice to speak Mandarin. And cruelty, of course, is a language that is taught, though not always repeated. The child knows it, but does not always speak it. In other words, my brother knew cruelty and spoke it. I knew cruelty, but did not speak it. And... And so Isabella does not speak the language of cruelty, and so she's not going to uh, do that. I mean, she's never, uh, as I said before, she's never experienced a raised voice, a harsh word, uh, a cold look, uh, a withdrawal of affection. Uh, She's certainly experienced frustration, and she's even been angry, of course, but uh, she's never experienced uh, uh, even the faint hint of uh, abuse or, or hostility or anger on uh, on the part of her parents or, or anyone else, right? Because apparently there aren't that many other people. <laughs> We've got some nice neighbors who she's friendly with. She does experience rejection. Um, recently, she's uh, when she sees another kid her own height, she runs forward and tries to give them a hug. And a, a few kids will say, uh, we'll hug her back one or two, but most of them will just sort of withdraw. Uh, uh, even if they're a little older, i uh, say four or five, they will withdraw and look at her funny, which is its a little heartbreaking. I think, you know, <laughs> a hug from a baby is about the nicest thing in the world, so why wouldn't you want to taste some of that pie, that sugar? But uh, that's, uh, that's where they are, right? But she's, you know, she's not particularly bothered by it. The other thing that's important to... Sorry, I forgot to mention this too, is that Izzy was not at all bothered by her inability to kick the ball in the way that I did. She gave it a shot, and then she was happy to just kick it around, and so on. So, it wasn't coming from her, because she wasn't experiencing ambivalence or frustration or self-criticism for her inability to kick the ball. So, that's sort of another thing to remember. It wasn't coming from her, it wasn't coming from me. It said it comes from somewhere else. So, uh, it certainly is true that uh, Isabella does not have the, quote, choice to be cruel, which leads to another interesting question, which is that if she does not have the choice to be cruel, uh, does she deserve praise for being kind, right? So if she's never experienced cruelty as a, as a child and she does not have, in a sense, the capacity for cruelty to other children, can she be deemed praiseworthy for not being cruel, for being kind, given that she, in a sense, doesn't have a choice? Well, I think yes. Uh, I think yes, of course. Um, <laughs> to put it very briefly, and I may do more of a podcast on this, but to put it very briefly, the purpose of philosophy is to eliminate itself, right? I would love for a world with no philosophers. In the same way that the purpose of oncology is to get rid of itself, ideally, right? To, for there to be no cancer, um, it would be great if nobody ever experienced appendicitis if there was a pill you could take. So the purpose, in a sense, of medicine is to eliminate illness, and if there were nobody ever got sick. There would be no doctors the purpose of medicine is to eliminate itself and uh, uh, so the purpose of philosophy would for there to be no need for philosophy because everybody was raised so well that cruelty would never even cross anybody's radar. Cruelty and violence and ugliness and abuse and uh, betrayal and viciousness and all of that. Like, it just would not be part of people's vocabulary, and so you would not need philosophy to guide you in the right choice, in the right course. Like, if <laughs> if everybody only ate what was best for them, you wouldn't need nutrition. And uh, Although it's, that's a little bit different, because, of course, your needs would change uh, change over time. But it certainly is my goal for... Isabella to have precious little need of philosophy until she joins the world as a whole. Well, she'll need it then because she will deal with uh, cruel and, and difficult and ugly and broken and vicious people. Uh, but I certainly don't want her to have any need of philosophy during this uh, these formative years when she's home with us and uh, doesn't have to deal with with that stuff. Now, she also because of how she's being raised she will have precious little need to deal with these people because they will give her a wide berth and she will uh, shy away from them uh, and give them a wide berth I think, I mean I'm guessing I'm not sure, but that would be my guess because they just uh, they they will see each other and they will understand each other I'm not going to raise her to be Ignorant of evil, but I certainly don't want to raise her to be uh, frightened of evil, because evil is uh, fundamentally, uh, in the absence of violence, uh, is only as potent as you let it be. Right. Evil is uh, just an attempt to poison you, but you have to drink the poison. Uh, they just all they do is hand you a cup and say drink. Right. Socrates did. I don't. So, so I, I think that she is, uh, she has virtue, she is virtuous. And she does not need to be tempted by evil in order to to be virtuous. In fact, I think it's better uh, because you waste less time worrying about your temptations and more time just being happy and doing the right thing. Now, another thing that came up for me in thinking about this was what I think is the very interesting question, which is, if Isabella is incapable of displaying virtue or of being virtuous, then... Can I love her? Right. So love is an involuntary response to virtue. Do uh, do I love my daughter at the age of sixteen months? Well, yeah, I love her passionately. I think, oh man, I get all emotional when I talk about this. I have to tell you, she is the nicest person I know. She is the sweetest and most generous and most affectionate and most wonderful. I mean, she is, you know, aside from her mom, she is the nicest person I know. And as I said, she's nicer than me. I got my jagged edges, which I actually think are helpful and healthy for what I'm doing. But she is, Isabella Molyneux, is the most delightful and nicest person that I know. And I just, I love her with an extraordinary passion. It's, it's not the same as when she was born. When she was born, she obviously didn't have the capacity for virtue for the early part of her life because she was, there was no choice. There was no, uh, exp- there was no self-expression really other than I'm hungry or, or not even that. I'm upset about something or whatever. Or I'm content. But um, uh, now I can see her making choices. Uh, I can see her making choices. Like, if she needs to be changed and she's really resistant and I don't have anything to distract her, then I have to really get her changed and she will submit. And she's fine with it and uh, she'll be upset. And I can see her then say, okay, well, I'm going to submit because obviously this is important and I'm not going to be able to get my way at the moment. So I see her submit to what needs to happen. I can see her make those choices because sometimes she doesn't. And then she sometimes, more often than not now, she does make those choices too. To To submit, which I think is uh, is good because right? she needs to, needs to get changed and it's very i 'm talking maybe five times in her whole life thats had to happen but uh, uh, or uh, you know at a, at a different level, I took her to uh, mcdonald 's today we had a a, a diet muffin, and uh, she was enjoying getting the ketchup uh, in those little white uh, little white bowls uh, little white paper balls, whatever they call them paper cups. And she had you know a whole bunch of ketchup, and then I had to stop her from having more ketchup because I was concerned about the level of sodium and sugar and so um, I, uh, I said no more, and she wanted more, and I basically said no and and she was uh, she was upset and then she was okay uh, and i don't I try not to just distract her. I used to, but I sort of felt a little bit bad about that, so i don 't distract her now. I just let her be upset, and we go and do somewhere something else, and I can see her make choices to no longer be upset, and I can see her decide to Focus on something else, and so on. And I know that you, know, you may not believe that, and I can understand your scepticism. And, and I could be completely wrong, but that certainly is my my experience of it. And so, when she was born, I had an attachment to her. I mean, she was beautiful and ours, and and incredibly precious and uh, long-awaited. And um, I was in, uh, very passionately devoted to her and very uh, attached to her, but you know, my sort of passionate love for her has grown as she has expressed a personality. I mean, she is, com- she is a complete person. She's not even a little person. She is a complete person. She has her likes, her dislikes, her passions, her loves, uh, and uh, her moods, and, and all of that. Well, moods. <laughs> happy and <laughs> frustrated. Mostly happy. 95% happy, 5% frustrated. And she is a... Um, yeah, a full personality, and she is somebody I enormously admire. I admire her courage. Uh, I admire her caution. Right, so she will do things that are dangerous, but if they are more than she can handle, she, not do, do things. That, if she will do things that are risky, but if it's more than she can handle, she will always reach out for help, and she'll wait until she gets help. So I really admire her courage. I admire her enthusiasms. I admire her affection for. The, I love her affection for the world. She says hi to everything. She gives hugs to people. She uh, she says hi to mailboxes, to uh, balls on the road. She says hi to cars to birds I mean she just loves the world, and i uh, I have uh, it has reawakened my own passion for the world to be around her passion for the world, and uh, I have found myself capable of a great deal of forgive and forget more so than I was uh, more, more so than I was in the past and uh, she's she's i mean she's teaching me she 's teaching me as much as I 'm teaching her if not more, but I love her so passionately, but at least according to my theory of RTR, I could not love her if she were not capable of goodness. But when she tastes something really nice, and the first thing she wants to do is turn and give me a piece, right? So we give her uh, some, some food that she really likes, and she likes uh, oranges. So she'll take a bite, and then she'll offer the rest to me. Well, I, th- I think that's really nice. She could eat more, uh, but she wants to share it with me. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's very generous. Uh, I think it's very kind. It's very sweet. And, uh, of course, she's now running to give us hugs, and she loves a a good cuddle and all that. And her passion for Christina and myself as people uh, is, of course, I mean, I I just... Oh, my God. I can't can't weep at the gym. Do not weep at the gym. (laughs) It's not the most... um, It's not the least manly place in the world, I suppose. And I could not... I don't think I could feel this love for her if I did not think she was capable of choice. And I haven't sort of sat there and said, well, she must be capable of choice so that I can love her to prove my theory or anything like that. And again, these are all things that, that could be wrong, although the science seems to indicate otherwise. The science seems to indicate that uh, babies as young as 11 months, uh, and even earlier, Isabella started feeding me when she was eight months old, that uh, they can develop empathy and and do things that are good, are, are, are pleasant, are nice, are universal. Right, so, I mean, I would give her the shirt off my back, and she knows that, and uh, I will do anything to keep her happy within the bounds of safety and security, and so she wants to return that uh, that favor. And so, I really appreciate her generosity, her sharing, her, her affection, her reciprocity. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, she could choose to eat more, but she chooses to share. And that's just one example. I sort of go in, I don't want to bore everyone with, with too many details, but... Uh, I do view her as as doing nice, good, virtuous, and positive things. The fact that she doesn't struggle with evil and cruelty, to me, is just great. I mean, isn't that great? you don't want the health of your kid to be defined by a struggle with tuberculosis, right? I mean, I guess you would appreciate your kid's health more if they struggle with tuberculosis and come over it, but nobody wants that. I don't want her to struggle with cruelty and evil and emerge triumphant so I can love her. I mean, any more than I want her to get a bad cold so I can appreciate her not having a cold. I mean, I want her to not get a cold. I want her to not struggle with... um, uh, with uh, immorality and cruelty and so on. I want her to just be naturally and glowingly a good in that way. That, to me, would, that's the whole point. So she doesn't need to be a philosopher in the way that I'm a philosopher. She doesn't need the level of self-knowledge that I need, right? I mean, if you become a diabetic, you learn a hell of a lot about blood sugar. Yay! <laughs> but nobody wants to become diabetic so they can find out about blood sugar. Most of us would prefer to live our lives not knowing a damn bit about our blood sugar because we were didn't have a problem with it. And so her level of self-knowledge is not going to need to be the same as mine, because she's not going to struggle with having to rebuild a shattered building of the self. Sorry, that was a very bad way to put it. She's not going to have to raise a sunken vessel and make it seaworthy again. She's just going to step into a ship that is seaworthy and self-repairing. Right. So I had to dredge myself up uh, from the bottom of the ocean and work to repair. So I knew a lot about dredging and ships and building and all that I don't want to want to have an electric ship that she can push a button and it goes, and I don't ever want to have to worry about it. So, she's not going to need the same level of philosophy, or even close. She may choose, you know, out of her own interest, right? I mean, you don't have to be di- have to be diabetic to study blood sugar if it's of interest to you. But she's not going to need the same level. Does that make me more virtuous or less virtuous? Because I've had to struggle more, a lot more, to become virtuous than she will ever have to struggle. Well, I don't know. I would say that the journey is greater. But um, that's like saying, is somebody healthier if they've broken their leg and it's set well? Well, no, they're still not as healthy as if they would never broken their leg. Unless, of course, you know, you break your leg, you go to rehab, you learn, love ex- you find out you love exercise, and so you exercise forever and blah, blah, blah. blah. But, but fundamentally, nobody breaks their legs in the hope of starting an exercise regime, <laughs> right? I mean, it may happen as a result, but nobody does that uh, purposefully. So... So I, I I do experience her as, as good. I do experience her characteristics as so overwhelmingly positive and beautiful that I just I love and worship her. And it's true that she doesn't have to struggle nearly as much with cruelty as my brother did uh, and fail, or even with uh, struggle with negatives uh, as I've had to struggle and sometimes fail. But uh, to me, that's that's good. That's that's the point. That's the point of philosophy is to raise people to not need philosophy, like the point of medicine is to raise people who never need to see a doctor, so to speak, right? Yay. So, there's another incident that occurred to me while I was uh, thinking about this. And it occurred about seven months ago. Isabella had just... I think she was just learning how to walk. She was around 11 months. She was just learning how to walk. I can't remember if she was taking a few steps independently or not or was just walking while holding on to things. She was just learning how to walk. And there was a boy... A blonde, cold-faced Malfoy kind of uh, from from uh, Harry Potter, Malfoy kind of looking boy, you know, was a kind of cold and icy looking boy. And uh, Isabella was uh, doing this thing where she, when she wanted to play with another kid, and she still does this sometimes, she would go, ahead, pfft. She wasn't spitting or anything; she was just making a pfft sound out of her mouth. And this uh, boy looked at her like with tripping contempt and said, don't spit. You know, really curled his lips and looked uh, with contempt at her. And I said to him, I said, she's a baby. All right? It's a public space. She's a baby. If you want to come around, I didn't say all of that. I just said she's a baby. But of course, and, and I was angry. I was angry with this boy for um, looking at, uh, my, for treating my daughter in that way. Uh, for, for giving her that view of contempt. Now, she didn't care at all, because it was just it was so extraneous to her existence, she probably didn't even recognize the look, right? because she'd never seen it before, and it had no emotional import to her, so she didn't care. She just kept moving on to the next toy and didn't give him another glance. But uh, I was angry with this boy, and to me, that's, that was very interesting, because, again, I, I'm going to accept, accept and, unless evidence goes strongly to the contrary, I'm going to accept that my anger was not unjust. I mean, it's ridiculous uh, and uh, embarrassing and stupid and cruel to say to a, a, a baby who's going, to say, to say, don't spit, as if she's got a concept of don't or spit or politeness or universality or <laughs> rudeness or anything like that, right? So uh, he was being exceptionally rude while complaining about her rudeness. And I would not feel angry. I would not feel angry at him were he not capable of better behavior. I mean, I just, I can't imagine that I would feel that way, because, I mean, I've spent a lot of time around kids. I worked in a daycare. I've had nieces. I've spent a lot of time around kids in my day. And I can't remember feeling angry at a kid for something that was involuntary. I really can't uh, feel angry. At least I can't remember feeling angry at a kid for something that was involuntary. So, I mean, uh, if, uh, if, if that boy had been feeling uh, nauseous, right? Let's say, and uh, he had uh, he had thrown up, right? And maybe some of it had landed on Isabella or whatever. I wouldn't feel angry, like, oh, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing? Man? I, wouldn't feel angry. I would feel, I think, I would feel sympathy, of course, right? I'd be like, oh my god, are you okay? My baby could be cleaned up. That's no big deal. But you're obviously not well. You, that's not good. And, uh, but I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that at all. Uh, so, I felt I felt angry because uh, I really strongly felt that that was really rude. And, of course, if I had done something to him along those lines, he probably would have been very upset. Now I'm aware that this is a bit of a brother thing and all that, particularly the way that he looked. Um, I mean, my, both my brother and I were albino blond when we were kids. But... Um, that was a very different situation because I really felt that he was uh, lording it over uh, a 10 or 11 month old. Oh, huh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Although he was a little older than my brother, it's the same age, right? That I was talking about at the beginning, that hadn't struck me, but I'm sure that that's, uh, that's relevant. That I was the same age as Isabella was and it probably reminded me of my first memory where my brother was uh, less, in a less sophisticated way but was, uh, was scorning me for, for being young. And so... My, my emotional apparatus indicated to me that this six or seven-year-old boy was responsible for his, uh, for his meanness to Isabella. It wasn't involuntary. And of course, he'd had this behavior model to him before and all that. But nonetheless, my emotions, my anger, uh, told me that he was, uh, he was responsible uh, in a way that if he had just thrown up, uh, or even if, uh, you know, if he'd tripped and flailed and hit my daughter, uh, I would have been, you know, are you okay? That's a shame and i work more to protect. Like, there are some boys there and it's usually boys, not to be overly stereotypical, but it usually is boys. There are some boys at the library who are very rough in their play and uh, I don't get mad at them. I am very conscious of the need to be the human shield between them and Isabella, um, but I'm not like, oh, you boys are so bad, you know. It's like, no, they're just doing what boys, particularly boys without parents do, which is to continually push the envelope of what is physically possible. And that does endanger other kids. And uh, it's a shame that it's not... But that, that I put more on the parents. And uh, so I'm not mad at that. I find it inconvenient and so on, but I'm not mad at it. But this I was angry at. And I just said, but she's just a baby. And I didn't... You know, I, just kept, I just kept her away from him after that because uh, I don't want her to be exposed to those kinds of feelings at all. I don't want those... I mean, I'm... <laughs> you know how parents are... Um, uh, so often really concerned about uh, the germs that their children are exposed to. Well, I feel the same way, but I don't feel it so strongly with germs, although that certainly is part of being a parent. Uh, I feel it very strongly with personalities. Right? <laughs> and that is what I'm very concerned about my daughter's exposure to. Uh, toxicity, she can get over a cold, but uh, the cruelty that gets into her when she's very young will stay in her forever, and I think we all can be—I think we're all aware of, of how that works and how that occurs. So I'm not nearly as concerned about a couple of uh, bacteria on uh, uh, on a spoon as I am about the personalities that she's exposed to. Um, she's got an immune system for her bugs, and in fact, you don't want to keep your kids in a bubble because they need to develop their immune system. But she doesn't have an immune system for toxic personalities, and uh, I don't have the right to expose her to toxic personalities any more than I have the right to blow smoke in her face um, and watch her cough. So, uh, so I just wanted to lay these thoughts down. I'm, I know they're not conclusive, but this idea that moral responsibility in certain areas occurs much earlier than uh, than I thought is very interesting. We all under- I think we all accept that. A 20-year-old is is morally responsible, and we accept that a, a one-year-old is probably is not. But it can't. It must be a rising curve. It can't just go from zero to 100 percent from 11:59 p.m. when they're 19 to 12 a.m. on their 20th birthday. It can't just go from zero to 100. It has to be steadily rising. And uh, I do believe that is uh, something that's well worth exploring. So I I invite you to uh, you know study the literature. Of course, you can read. Um, Paul Bloom. You can read Alison Gottnick, a Descartes baby, a philosophical baby. There's a New York Times article, The Moral Life of Babies. There's lots of great research. And of course, I've interviewed some people about this, that there are moral choices to be made when children are young. Very, very young children can distinguish the difference between politeness and morality, between social rules and moral rules, i.e. I it's bad to hit versus you need to hang your coat on this hook by your name. That's a rule, but it's not a moral rule. They understand the difference between that. And so maybe, just maybe, morality starts a whole lot earlier. And the last thing I'll say about this is that I think that we as a culture and we as parents have always known that morality starts so much earlier. Why? Because we are always admonishing children from the standpoint of ethics. right? I mean, it's not good parenting, but it's very common parenting to say, you know, that's selfish, or you should share. don't be mean, don't be cruel, don't be this, don't be that. Well, those are all moral terms, right? If uh, if a cat doesn't want to share some catnip with another cat, we don't say to that cat, don't be mean, don't be selfish. I mean, I guess you could say it, but you wouldn't really mean it, like you're morally condemning the cat, because the cat is not capable of that kind of morality. Whereas we will say to children all the time, um, we will use moral terms with regards to children, right? I mean, if you just look at original sin, right? I mean, that that strikes in at the age of seven, if I remember rightly, that you are sinful, that you are capable of of good and evil, and I would say that we're, we're, as a culture, we recognise children are sensitive to moral rules and moral criticisms from a very very early age, and maybe we're onto something. I mean, it doesn't mean to me that doesn't mean to me that we should then use those moral terms abusively, but. I think it's something really worth exploring, and I certainly look forward to your thoughts and experiences and opinions on this. And thank you as always so much for listening. I look forward to your donations.